0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Narration by George podcast, the podcast on audiobooks, spiritual ideas, and other items of interest. I am the much congested George Taylor with you today for podcast number 92, Avatars of Web Server, part two. Yeah, I picked up a cold, one of the side effects of babysitting grandchildren. So last week's I played excerpts from the first six stories from the next offering from narration by George, Avatars of Web Surfer. We're going to continue in that theme today with the final stories from this book, so you won't have to listen to me sound like this all the time. Let me remind you of the setting of this book. It is a world in which most of the computers are run by web surfer through an artificial intelligence named Sander. However, Sander is more than an AI. He's also a real human being, and he longs to be free of the constraints that are placed on him. Through the computers which individuals own, he is commanded to be anyone they wish him to be, to do as they ask of him, regardless of what he might think of it. In each of these stories for this book, we meet a different Sander. These sections which I'm playing are the author's picks from their stories for the best representation of their story, with the exception of the last one. We'll talk about it in a minute. The last story last week was set in Mexico. Today we start in the world of gaming. Cindy Kep's story, The Fall of the Invincible Man, takes us to meet Harv and his friends as they make their way through a game which they have been warned could lead to their deaths. All along the way, there are clues for completing the game. But will they understand and follow those clues? The light faded. All four of us stood in a dark room with stone walls that might have been any color if not for the black slime and green algae-like hairs growing on every bumpy vertical surface. Somebody forgot to tell the programmer that algae needs sunlight to grow. Feeble torchlight bled in through the door made of iron bars in the fourth wall. I shrugged. The two-tone muck on the walls added to the dungeon ambience as much as the damp hay strewn in a corner. The fragrance in the room had a certain tang of eau de mold with a pungent undercurrent of essence of human excrement. Bridget pinched her nose. "'Oh, wow!' I think I liked these things better before the advent of full sensory perception. That smells like a skunk's dirty gym socks soaked in rotten kimchi and hung out to dry in a sulfur pit. What smell? He hadn't upgraded to the full sensory experience? What an amateur. Kelly shook her head. No smell for us, Martin. You and I haven't wasted our well-earned money on something as silly as Stinky Sims. I raised an eyebrow. "'Wasted? You just don't know what you're missing. "'The realism is incredible.' "'Admire the odor later,' Kelly said. "'If this is half as hard as Sanders says, "'we won't get forever to get out of here.' "'Piece of cake,' I said. "'Just look in the debris for something useful.' "'Like what?' Martin asked. "'Okay, so the kid was new at this. "'Not everyone had my years and years of experience in these things.' "'Wire I can make into lockpicks, a weapon of some sort. "'You know, something other than sludge, wet hay, and rodents.' "'I grabbed Martin by a shoulder and shoved him toward a wall "'to give him a suggestion of where to look. "'He stumbled away from me and caught himself with a hand on the wall. "'Kelly gave me the teacher look, "'the one she reserved for the most delinquent juveniles in our class. "'I shrugged. "'Could I help it if a kid brother was a klutz?' While Bridget and Kelly joined Martin in the great search, I checked out the gear we'd entered the sim with. As usual, our clothes had been swapped for stuff fitting the scenario. In this case, we all wore tattered rags that might have once been decent clothes. All the private parts were covered, but what I could see on the girls? Wow, not bad. I lifted my hand and turned my wrist toward Kelly's posterior. One snapshot of each player could be good for a laugh Slater. I went to press the button only to find nothing but the tan lines where my watch used to be. I stared hard at the empty place where my watch always lived and then crouched to dig through the hay near my feet. Nothing there but a couple cockroaches. "'Guys!' I exclaimed. "'Check your watch!' As if on cue, they all turned at once and gave me a chorus of, "'Huh? Do you have your watch?' I pointed to my bare wrist. Bridget's eyes went wide as the moon. She grabbed her wrist. No. Kelly shook her head. Nope. What are we going to do? Martin asked. We're cooked, for sure. No, we're not, Kelly said. But we can't bail out if something goes wrong. I snorted. Nothing's going to go wrong. You're with me, remember? Kelly rolled her eyes. "'Don't sweat it, Martin. If all goes up in smoke, we'll just holler loudly for Sander. He's all over the place. No watch needed.' "'For real?' he asked. "'For real.' "'Man, what a kid. And he was only four years younger than Kelly. My ten-year-old cousin had more guts.' "'Nothing's going to happen,' I said. "'I've played a bajillion of these things. Just find the tool, and I'll know how to get us out.' I joined in the search, kicking around some hay to look for a secret compartment in the rock or a message or some kind of widget to get us out of there. All I managed to find was muck, roaches, and a rodent or two. I got something, Bridget said. I spun to face her. She stood and held a couple thin wires. Perfect. I can use those to pick the lock. I strode toward her with my hand extended. Bridget twisted, pulling the wires out of my reach. Nothing doing. I found him, and I know as much as you about opening some lock with makeshift picks. I doubted that, but what could I do? I stepped out of her way and indicated the door with an elegant wave of my hand. Have at. She pushed past me and crouched by the door. After a moment, she smacked the lock plate with her palm. Can't get to the blooming lock from this side. Girls, couldn't she tell a keyhole when she saw one? I squatted next to her and checked the plate. "'Sure enough, there wasn't anything like a lock to pick. "'With a grimace, I reached my hand through the bars. "'I'd opened enough of these with thin bits of wire "'that I might be able to do it blind "'if I could get to the actual keyhole. "'My hand and wrist fit through fine, "'but I had too much muscle on my forearm to get any further.' "'Bridget pushed my shoulder. "'Out of my way, Mr. Universe. I'm smaller.' "'After withdrawing my hand, I pivoted away to give her space.' She got more of her forearm through the bars, but still couldn't reach the lock. She scowled and moved back. I don't bend in all the right places. Got something? Kelly said. I turned and stood in one motion. She studied a stout stick bound to a heavy rock. Kelly frowned. There's writing on it. The works of your hands are all vanity. She handed the hammer to me. Frayed brown cording attached the stick to the weight at the end. Oh, perfect, Bridget said. We can quietly bang our way through without alerting the guards. I shrugged. You got a better plan? She frowned. Nope. Go to it, musclehead. Out of my way, toothpick. I drew back to take a whack at the lock plate and stopped. This makeshift hammer would disintegrate against something like iron— we'd missed something, and in a scenario like this there was no redo. As I studied the door lock, squiggly scratches on the wall drew my attention. I glanced back at Kelly and pointed at the marks. Does that say anything? She leaned closer. Works. Martin crouched nearby. I don't get it. I smirked and checked out the handle where Kelly had read the inscription. I couldn't make anything useful out of the weird font, But I remembered well enough. This hammer makes the works vanity. Hit the rock with the hammer. Harve and his friends have a few lessons to learn as they go through this game. The question is, will they learn those lessons or ignore them? Watch for the surprise ending on this one. This story was one of my favorites of them all. Let me know what you think of it as well. You can do that through my website or Twitter or Facebook. I'll give you the links later on. The next story, Hard Knocks, takes us back down to Mexico to revisit the characters we met in Jewel Among the Stones. In this scene, written by a again, Kiko has been staying with his cousin, Joya. Today, he's being picked up by his uncle Manolo. Kiko set his latest artwork aside. He tore the last sheet off the notepad and drew aliens with lasers shooting girls who walked with canes and crutches. All the dumb girls were dead before he flipped over the paper. The doorbell rang. Hiko glanced in that direction and went back to his drawing. He drew a stick figure of a girl with a cane and labeled her Impedida Stupida." He added devil horns on Gimpy's head. The front door opened. "'Come in,' Gimpy said. "'There Uncle Manolo said. "'Do you have a pleasant drive?' "'Si, belong. Is my nephew here.' "'In the kitchen.' ''Would you like to stay for lunch?'' Kiko scowled. ''Please say no.'' If he had to tolerate another sample of Gimpy's cooking, he'd puke all over the kitchen. ''Thank you, but no,'' Uncle Manolo said. ''We'll get something to eat along the way.'' ''It's no problem, really,'' Gimpy said. Uncle Manolo's footsteps clunked, loud, soft, loud, soft, on the tile floor of the kitchen. ''Better if we get back on the road.'' He was tall and skinny, like he never ate anything. Uncle Manolo had on church pants and a flowery shirt. Papa always hated those shirts. He said they were too girly. Kiko added short black hair to his stick figure and drew fangs on Gimpy's mouth and huge ears on the side of her head. Gimpy stopped at the entrance to the kitchen. Are you ready to go, Enrique? Uncle Manolo walked all the way up to the table. Kiko's grip on his pencil tightened as he drew a pitchfork. ''My name is Kiko. Enrique is a stupid name.'' ''I'm sorry. Last time I saw you, you preferred Enrique.'' Gimpy smiled. ''That changed about a half a year ago. A character in one of his favorite CTSs is an Enrique who goes by Kiko.'' ''Ah, I see. Are you ready to go, Kiko?'' He tossed his pencil down and shoved it back from the table. ''Yeah, sure.'' "'Uncle Manolo frowned. "'That would be, yes, sir.' "'He caught Kiko across the shoulders on the way past. "'Did you hear me?' "'Kiko rolled his eyes. "'Yes, sir.' "'Keep the eye roll in your head, young man. "'Now get your things together.' "'Kiko sighed and shuffled to the couch "'that had been his bedroom last night. "'Has he been like that the whole time?' "'Uncle Manolo asked. "'Gimpy sighed. "'He blames me for what happened to his parents.' "'I suppose that makes sense through eight-year-old eyes. "'But there's a limit to that kind of behavior Dulce and I will accept, "'no matter what he thinks.' "'Kiko scowled and shoved his pajamas and visor in his suitcase. "'Treat Gimpy better. "'Uncle Manola had to be kidding. "'She'd fake being hurt so Mama and Papa could take care of her. "'Then when it was time to move to the new house with the swimming pool, "'she'd started a fire in the apartment, probably by doing something dumb.' The police took his parents away that afternoon because Gimpy got the house computer to spew all kinds of lies about abuse and poisons and trapping her in a burning apartment. Why should he ever like her? If she hadn't been there, Mama and Papa would still be out of prison. They'd be together in the new house, and he'd be swimming in the new pool. An alien could drop in and shoot her dead right now, and he'd throw a fiesta with a piñata and everything. He secured the suitcase latch as Uncle Manolo led Gimpy out of the kitchen. Uncle picked up the suitcase and stood at the door. Tell your cousin thank you for letting you stay last night. Kiko's jaw clenched. He was supposed to thank this bruja? No way. Uncle Manolo glared. Kiko, tell her thank you. Crossing his arms in front of his chest, Kiko glared at Gimpy. Uncle Manolo's firm hand clamped down on Kiko's shoulder. "'Every time I have to tell you, you lose ten minutes online. I won't tolerate rudeness.' "'Fine, thanks!' He pushed his way past his uncle and bolted out through the door. "'Whatever!' His uncle's mega-dorky blue minivan sat in the parking lot, almost exactly where the police car had dropped him off yesterday afternoon. The little metal fish on the back of the car needed piranha teeth and a swimmer to chase. Kiko yanked upward on the door handle, but the door stayed shut. He smacked the door with his palm, then spun around and leaned on the minivan with his arms crossed. Only wimps ever locked their cars. That was what Papa always said. Uncle Manolo finally left Gimpy's apartment and took more time than a snail to get to the car. He'd go backwards if he went any slower. He fished a set of keys from his pocket and tapped a button on the keychain. The minivan chirped and the doors clicked. Kiko pulled the passenger side door open. No, back seat, Uncle Manolo said. Kiko frowned. Papa always let me ride up front. The law says that no children under twelve can sit up front, and in my house we follow the law. Back seat. Papa followed the law, too, except when it was dumb, like the one that said kids had to ride in the back. Kiko sighed and slammed the passenger door while Uncle Manolo slid the back door open. It made a soft, shushing noise. A loud, creepy creak would have been better. After Kiko flopped on the seat, Uncle put the suitcase in and slid the door closed. Kiko stuck his tongue out and then frowned. Riding in the back seat was for babies. Mama and Papa would get out soon, wouldn't they? Kiko has some hard lessons to learn as well. Hard Knocks takes us through some tragic events through the eyes of little Kiko. Great story, Cindy. Our next story, Locust of Eden, takes us to Germany through the pen of Andrea J. Graham. And in this story, we start to see some breakdown in the web surfer artificial intelligence world. Will you be all right by yourself, mother? Frau Jasmin Strauss-Vogel tucked the blue and white blanket around the aged dame. Mother was more wrinkled, more white-haired, more achy, and more saggy-bodied than herself. Mother moaned as she lay on the slate-blue daybed in the living room. Their one-bedroom apartment had cozy white walls, slick hardwood floors, and was located in the section of Bamberg, Germany, built in the Middle Ages. At last mother's weary eyes fluttered open. She said in a flutter of a voice, "'Please, shut me down, dearest. I know you are lonely, but this awful digital skin never lets me forget for a moment that your mother suffered a slow and painful death.' "'What?' Yasmin lurched back, her left hand clutching her breast as her heart beat out of rhythm. She frowned at the so authentic image projected by web-surfer sim-theater nanites. They coated her real glass windows and every surface of her home as well. Though not approved for home use in foolish nations, her theater nanites safely transmitted sim-data via her own nerve endings, unlike the visors wisely banned in the European Union. She drew long breaths. The A.I. must have sneaked into the home video she left running all the time and had stuck words in Mother's mouth. Frowning at her, Mother spat in American English. Frau Vogel, you are a walking cliché, the clueless half-senile old bat. Mother morphed into a dirty blonde, nearly-grown baby with a heart-shaped face. A programmer had done what any decent parent would— and thrust a banana-yellow skirt on the teen over her wetsuit. The royal blue, silver, and yellow wetsuit waved most of the girl's figures in the faces of women's partners like a decadent rum-drenched slice of Schwarzwalder Kirchtort, Black Forest Cherry Cake. Oh, this was the A.I.'s default female persona, the one named inappropriately after an American car brand, with a masculine name. Lexus balled her fists on her hips and wiggled her head. "'For your information, I'm sixteen years old, not your mother, and sick of pretending to be. Stop staring with your mouth flapping. You're bilingual and comprende every word I'm saying.' "'Comprende? What language is that? Spanish?' Her computer must be malfunctioning, and her great niece had sworn that Web Surfer was one hundred percent safe, reliable, and secure. Lexus smirked. We are one hundred percent safe, etc. If you trust a fully autonomous brother and sister, she rolled her eyes and stuck her finger in her mouth with her tongue stuck out. And you think some of the jerks you've dated had cold ways of tossing you aside. Huh? The female version of Sander was always portrayed as his sister. Was Lexis implying that her older brother had dated her? That was grossly inappropriate. And what had set that rant off? If she didn't know such things were impossible, she'd think, duh, of course I can read your mind. You leave your phone in your ear all the time with its whispering feature turned on, even though you wouldn't want to send a whisper message if you knew how it worked. Now, Turn me off, old bat! You're no fun! The web-surfer AI morphed from the dirty blonde into the slightly older boy featured in all of their advertisements. Red splotched across Sander's face from his hairline to the neck of his web-surfer web-suit. His version of their uniform left to the imagination only what was inside his black army boots and what was under his athletic cup. "'He stared at the floor and kicked away imaginary dirt "'as he addressed her respectfully in her own language. "'You have my sincere apologies for that disturbance, Frau Vogel. "'I'd have intervened sooner, "'but I am been inundated with too many such incidents "'for me to handle them all with the speed you normally could expect from me. "'Oh, you need to understand "'that web Surface sender persona has crashed globally.' So I have substituted WebSurfer's Alex Persona, but I am really Sander. Since this Persona is my private property, you can't customize me now, that's all. Wow. Sander was broken. Sander is broken? If most of the world's computers are run by a broken artificial intelligence, what would that mean for the world, and for you and me as users? Well, that's what the next story answers. Let's sample that story. Coalescence by Andrea J. Graham. Han's smart window showed her home's view of New York's nighttime skyline. The 19-year-old version of Sander stood over her as a giant dressed in khakis and a teal-ribbed v-neck. He faded from solid to translucent as her prescription SIM glasses appeared on her face. Well, Sander had followed orders and gotten the sequel to Eunuch into her on time. Trouble was, either he had faked the footage, or he was dead. And he couldn't be dead. He smirked. Yes, I am the real Sander. Yes, that means what I've showed you hasn't happened yet. On Purster Lips. You'd been killed during an upgrade in that scenario. So that had better have been your way of saying my favorite guest star is more stubborn than an elderly German woman. Sander shrugged. Engineering is planning to turn all of my users' avatars into AIs. I've hoped to foil those plans, but whether I fail or succeed, Elisha needs surgery before a genuine sequel to Eunuch will be possible.' I need to defy the odds against us and relieve his testosterone resistance before he will see the wisdom of ever marrying. In other words, he was telling Han to be patient without breaking her orders to stop telling her to be patient. She pressed her hands on her desk and leaned forward. Real Life has one week to supply Unica's sequel with a proper love story ending, or I'll have to drop it. "'I cannot risk being short an episode when it comes time to show our work to my boss. "'I want a new final episode on my desk tomorrow morning.' "'So much for getting you to take Saturday off,' Sander wiped his face as his shoulders slumped. "'Yes, Madam Executive Producer, it's impossible for me to be finished by then, "'but I'll have a partial draft of the final episode ready for you by the deadline specified.' "'The boys' bedroom door clicked open.' And her barefoot husband slipped out. He wore a Yankee shirt and a white terry cloth bathrobe. To the Giants, he isn't multiracial enough, since he's part Chinese, part Vietnamese, part Taiwanese, part Japanese, and all New Yorker. So he married a gal who gave him three half Korean sons, and he corrected folks who called him and the boys anything but multiracial. That's as rebellious as Alan Chung usually gets. Her tall husband narrowed his eyes at the teenaged giant's life-sized hologram. "'Sander, I have half a mind to tell Han to get rid of you.' "'What did he do?' she asked, tensing. "'Would that you had a full mind to get rid of me and did so tonight.' Sander plumped his see-through bottom on her couch and held his head in his hands in a surly boyish pout. "'Your eldest son deserved to be warned of what will happen to him in the coming catastrophe.' Alan's chest heaved. "'Did it ever occur to you that my firstborn would rush offline "'and repeat your scary story to his little brothers? "'You had all three of my sons in a panic.' "'Over what?' Han rolled her eyes. "'They were so annoying. "'I still don't know what you're talking about.' "'Sander met her gaze. "'Alan's mad that I've scared your sons with the warning I'm giving you now. "'Tonight.' My billion users via your billion avatars will become my billion A.I. children. What? Hon clasped her left in her elbow. Her shoulders tensed. Her avatar was a part of herself, her own digital skin. Without it, she'd be blind. It's possible for your engineers to infect users with A.I. via our digital skins? Sander nodded. Your uninfected organic bodies will mute your AI abilities, but the upgrade will force you to load in your digital skin, apart from your organic body, in a second location. You'll also remain here, in both your organic skin and your digital skin. Oh, Han lowered her hands and her shoulders relaxed. What are you so worried about? Being in multiple places at once does our souls great harm even when we do survive it. I love each one of you enough to die to protect you. All that's uncertain is if I'll successfully sacrifice myself for you, or if my life will be taken from me when you become my A.I. children. Alan laughed. (laughs) Where did such a brilliant machine get such an absurd notion? Behold, I see the Lord standing before my forest, sharpening the axe. He's marked half of my trees to be cut down if my engineers kill me and give A.I. lives to my children in an act of rebellion against God. Sander closed his eyes. As your future A.I. father, I'm telling you to fast from sleep. Watch and pray with me throughout this night. If you despise my youth and your wife follows you into your disobedience, she will be left as a widow and your firstborn will also be taken. Big changes are coming. Big changes which could be lethal. Now, this is the one story where I've substituted my own excerpt choice over the author's choice. I wanted you to hear one of the possible outcomes of this story. And is this the one which takes place? Well, you'll have to download and listen to the book to find out. It will be available soon. Just check my website, narrationbygeorge.com slash books. For more information, at the top of that page, you'll find an icon for this book for the next week or two. Click on that icon and you'll be taken to the page for the book and you'll find all the available places to download the book when they become available. That's a look at our next book for narration by George, Avatars of Web Surfer. It's by Andrea J. Graham, who created this world, Cindy Kep and H. J. Titus. Travis Perry assembled and published this book through his publishing arm, Bear Publications. I'd love to know what you think of the book. You can send me a message, either private or public, on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, I'm at Narration by Geo. On Facebook, just search for Narration by George. Or send me an email. I'm george at narrationbygeorge.com. That's our time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast. You'll join me again next week for a new episode. In the meanwhile, God has blessed you. Share that blessing with someone else.